We, the professionals, think we know the story, and we pack our own words into the mouths of people who cannot remember, and we think we're being helpful. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. This is a podcast that breaks down interpersonal science into practical and understandable tidbits. And as you listen, I can just imagine little light bulbs of insight appearing above your head. You're going to be surprised and touched at what you learn about yourself as you get more accurate and in-depth view of your mind and your heart and as you figure out those close to you. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hello, I'm Ann Kelly, and in today's episode, my co-host Sue Marriott jumps back in with our guest, Dr. Patricia Crittenden. Now, this is the second of a two-part interview, but don't worry if you hadn't heard last episode, the first part, because they can stand alone. We really couldn't be more honored to have gotten so much time with Dr. Crittenden that we needed two episodes to be able to cover all the material she has to bring to you all today. She's a rock star, really. You may not know her name, but she has studied directly under Mary Ainsworth and worked closely with John Bowlby. And she has, through decades of research and publication, she's developed her own model of how we attach and adapt to the world. And that's called the Dynamic Maturational Model. You'll hear Dr. Crittenden refer to it as DMM. She is going to discuss that model. In fact, Dr. Crittenden represents one of Sue and I's motivation for doing Therapist Uncensored in the first place. It's because we love the opportunity to bring someone who has inspired and taught us so much personally to our listeners. And actually, for the longtime listeners out there, you'll probably hear her influence on the different ways we have discussed relationship and attachment strategies on the podcast. But today, she's going to walk us through her model and how it contrasts with the more traditional ways of viewing attachment. And in this episode, she's going to help us understand our attachment strategies and how they shift through our lifespan. We talk about from infancy through childhood and adolescence all the way through adults, giving us loads of insight about how our needs and challenges shift so much. After this episode, you're going to have a much deeper understanding about how you or your kids or your partner or all your peeps self-protect and adapt, and really as well as how psychopathology can develop and what to do about it to continue to develop more adaptable self-protective strategies. You know, this interview, as you can tell, is just chock full of amazing information, so much so that it may be a bit more for our super neuro nerds out there. But don't worry, we're going to follow up, Sue and I, with a highlight of what takeaways in the episode to follow. But if you're a first-time listener and it sounds a bit more technical than you were bargaining for when you signed on, then you may want to first tune into maybe one of our more regular discourses like episodes 59 through 61 to get a better feel for a more usual rhythm. So if you have a chance, though, before you start to listen to Dr. Crittenden and Sue today, you may want to go to the show notes if you're at home or at work and you can print out the slides. It could help just clarify some of the things she speaks about in the discussion. But if you're driving, you can't. Don't worry about it. You're still going to gain a ton. 
Before we jump in, I want to do a big shout out to our newest co-executive producer, Open City Psychotherapy. So thank you. They are our newest Platinum Patreon members. And we'll tell you more at the end of the episode about how to become a Patreon member yourself. But a big thank you. All right, we're going to jump in with Dr. Crittenden speaking about her model. Now, you asked me to talk about DMM versus disorganization. And in order to talk about dimensions, I really do have to do that. Ainsworth had three patterns, A, B, and C. They had sub-patterns within them. Mary Main found a fourth pattern, and she called it D, and she gave it disorganized, disoriented, whereas Crittenden also found a fourth pattern, and she called it AC. That's me. I'm Crittenden. (laughs) But in the model that you can see with the slides, and I know if you're listening, you don't see this. For Ainsworth, I have three boxes, A, B, and C. For Maine and Solomon's A, B, C, D, I have four boxes, A, B, C, and D. For Crittenden's DMM, I have almost a half circle with pie slices. And at the top of this pie are the Bs. At the lower edges on either side are the A's, on the right-hand side and the C's on the left-hand side. And in the middle is AC combinations. And outside of the circle, I talk about information, true cognitive information for the A's and true negative affect for the C's and omitted negative affect for the extreme A's and distorted, exaggerated negative affect for the extreme Cs, and integrated true information for the Bs. I'm already saying in infancy, you can't talk about the strategies without understanding the information that the infant brain is using, and the As, the Bs, and the Cs emphasize different sorts of information. We've got to go neurological here. All right, that's infancy. Off to the preschool years, and Ainsworth doesn't have anything there, so I've crossed that out on my slide. The ABCD has now changed. There's A and B and C, then their boxes like they were, but D has become D controlling. This is the MacArthur the Cassidy-Marvin, it's been under many different names, but it's decontrolling that is in that category. Over in the DMM, the lower edges of the infant model have now been filled out in their pie slice, and we have compulsive caregiving and compulsive compliant in the A's, and aggressive and feigned helpless in the C's. So just so that people can keep following you. So the A's for our language has been what we're calling the blue, right? Which is formally called the dismissive avoidant. Is that right? That is. But the word avoidant, thank you, Bob Marvin, doesn't work beyond infancy. And you will get yourself into all kinds of problems if you take the behavioral word avoidant and apply it to A across the lifespan. Because the behavior changes. 
you really need to hear about in the A's, these are my compulsive A's, compulsive caregiving. Yes. Mom is depressed. She's withdrawn. She's preoccupied with things that aren't me. I need her attention because if anything went wrong for me, I need her to protect me. So I'm going to comfort her. I'm going to bring her things. I'm going to be super cheerful if she's depressed. She doesn't want to hear me complain. She wants to see me as cheerful. I will get more of my mother's attention if I take care of her absent state, her depressed state, her withdrawal. And compulsive compliance is my mother's angry and she will punish me hard. So I will be obedient. I will anticipate her needs and I will do what she wants even before she asks, because, and this will give you the sample where I got it, I've been abused, and I know the consequences of not doing what she wants. Right, and and it still fits that blue, formerly called dismissive, because it's a version of dismissing ourselves. And in order to be close to the caregiver, we have to shut out and inhibit our own negative affect and be attentive to the other, right? Yes. In this dyadic relationship that should involve communication from me about me and communication from you about you and then some negotiation about the differences in what you need right now and what I need right now, these preschool-age children have given up awareness of their own needs and their own feelings, and they organize their behavior from the perspective of the parent, giving the parent what the parent needs, because that makes the relationship better. On the other side of the model... The C's, which I insist are green. (laughs) Why green? Because I was deviating away from blue, which is B, and blue is the color of the sky, and it's the color of water, and it's the color of my eyes, so it's the best. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, in my extreme C's, my C12 was a little threatening, a little disarming. Disarming is a gift of Bob Marvin. I don't want to steal his thunder. But now when you get into more extreme C's that we'll call three and four, C3 and C4, you get children who are not just threatening, they're openly aggressive. They're the ones who hit, kick, shout. As they get language, they will say unpleasant things and feigned helpless. Oh, I can't, I can't, I get the little high voice and they stumble and they fall and they hurt themselves. Much more than is real. The C3 aggressive pretends to invulnerability and hides his fearfulness. And the feigned helpless pretends that they are incompetent and they hide their anger. And you, the clinician... Seeing preschool age type C children who are brought to you, you need to know that the opposite half of the strategy is in the mind of the child, even if it doesn't show very often in behavior. So if you are brought by the back of the neck, the collar is held and the child is brought into you, 
an aggressive child, a bullying child, you should not be treating his anger. You should be treating his hidden fearfulness. When he doesn't feel afraid, then he will not act aggressively. If you treat the aggression, you will not find the problem. Beautiful. If a little feigned helpless, the victim of all the other kids who beat up on, and I'm going to be sexist here, her, but it can be a boy, if this little helpless kid with these somatic problems for which there is no medical reason and always beat up by the other kids, if you work on the feigned helplessness and do not address the inhibited rage fury that this child feels and feels they dare not show, you won't find the problem. You need to know what makes this child angry. Why do they feel that they have to inhibit the anger, but they can show the distress? And you need to do that in a family situation, in a dyadic situation, because this child's learned this strategy at home with their parents. You need to know why they're using that strategy. And you won't solve the problem if you don't see the part that isn't readily visible. Right, that it's a split off part. And then this correlates to the old preoccupation. It's a preoccupied with part of the self's feelings, but not all of the self's feelings. So both of these patterns, A and C, involve splitting. The A's split their own self from the other, and they focus on the parent, the other. They take the perspective of the powerful person. The C's split their negative affect, showing either the vulnerable or the invulnerable affects, and they hide the other from view. Now, they actually do alternate these, but the extreme ones, the ones brought into treatment, alternate them in a little flip, not 50-50, they alternate them 90-10. And if you overlook the 10, you're overlooking where the power of your therapy can become active if you engage the parent. Super clinically powerful. Brilliant. All right, guys, hang on. It only gets more exciting. It is. <laughs> and now kids are introduced to what other people, teachers and other kids experience. And in my slide for the ABCD model, I still have those four boxes and their names haven't changed, but they have become gray boxes, not black boxes, because the ABCD model doesn't really have an assessment that they can use for the school years. The DMM does have an assessment, and now we have a new C pattern, which we're going to call punitive and seductive. And now this type C strategy is one of digging in and using what I will call false cognition. And false cognition is deception. These are the kids who can lead you to think you know what they're going to do, and they will stab you in the back. 
or they are the kids who will lead you to think they really, really like you. They seduce you into the relationship. Punitive, which I took from the decontrolling punitive to line those patterns up. Punitive is, in my language, obsessed with revenge. This individual is losing access to information because they are so obsessed with revenge. The seductive child is obsessed with rescue. They are so obsessed with getting their attachment figure to rescue them that they are losing information about protecting themselves. These are really important patterns. They do end up with somebody recommending treatment for these children. And if you try to offer treatment only to the child, you will probably be unsuccessful. These strategies are learned at home. They're used in families. They work most effectively, better than any other strategy, in the family of these children. And if you don't know what's going on in that family, you can't change that strategy. Mm-hmm. You must have parents who are willing to change with you. If the parents are unwilling to participate and they are unwilling to change, you can't ask the teacher to change. She's got 35 kids in that room. She's not going to do it for this troublesome one. Right. If you can't get the important adults to change, you've got one hour, maybe once a week, in which to help this child to recognize, as a school-age child, he's six, seven years old, up to puberty, in which to recognize that his strategy works in certain contexts and doesn't work in others, and help him to identify, this really works with mom, this is the best thing I can do when mom is angry. Mm-hmm. But boy, does it get me in trouble with school. This is not the right strategy at school. Mm-hmm. So contextualize the strategy. School-age mm-hmm. children can talk. You can do very concrete, reflective thinking with them. Mm-hmm. And if you can get them to see, you have the best strategy for some situations, but a failing strategy for other situations then you can use your hour to practice a different strategy that might be useful at school, with your dad, with your grandma. If nobody else is going to change with you, you're probably limited to trying to keep the door to a new strategy open rather than being able to implement the new strategy. Mm -hmm. You're playing a waiting game. I was just thinking that you're playing defense a little bit. (laughs) You're waiting until late adolescence when the child can foresee living outside of his family. Yes, I can totally see that. But you don't want to close off the possibility Mm -hmm. of using the school-age child's mind Mm -hmm. to recognize context and the possibility of alternative behavior. Yeah, Yeah, you're keeping options open. Right. You're keeping your options open. Over on the A side, there are no new strategies, but I forgot to mention that preschoolers use false positive affect. Children using a type A strategy are almost never referred to therapy, but children who are murdered by their parents are more likely to use a type A strategy 
than any other strategy. These are the children who learn to smile when it hurts, learn to smile when they feel like crying. They make their parents feel better. They make professionals feel better. They make teachers feel good. They're doing what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. And they make social workers feel better. Even if you put them in a foster placement, they smile all the way and they don't kick and scream. These are the children that mislead us by inhibiting the negative affect. Almost every case of child death that I have analyzed has had a child who was called smiley or sunshine or sweetness. And in the reviews by the government authorities, we hear things like, she skipped down the halls of the hospital with all 128 active injuries on her body, including broken bones and being emaciated, and she's smiling and skipping in the halls, and you think it's good? That's false positive affect that professionals do not recognize as a very important danger signal. When the context is negative and the child is smiling or laughing or kissing, be worried. Be much more worried than the angry acting out child. Mm -hmm. He's showing you there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Be worried about false positive negative affect occurring in negative dangerous circumstances. Mm -hmm. If I could get any one message out to child protection people, it would be this one. Mm -hmm. Do not be confused by false positive affect right. when the situation is dangerous. Right. It's like the danger is higher. The danger is higher. Danger is higher. And it's meant to put professionals, parents, adults at ease. And we buy it, we lap it up, adolescence. Well, you will see that for the ABCD, I still have my gray boxes, but that's not quite accurate. The ABCD model does not have an assessment for adolescents, but they use the adult attachment interview. The adult attachment interview was written for parents of six-year-old children. It's the product of Carol George and her colleagues. It's intended for people who have six-year-old children. It's, of course, been used much wider than that, but it was not intended for adolescents, and it gives misleading results when applied to adolescents who have not moved out of their parents' home, are not economically independent, do not have their own children, do not have a partner, and do not have the brain maturation associated with adulthood. So it's used, but I put it in a gray box because I think it's the wrong tool. The DMM, on the other hand... May I clarify? So you mentioned Carol George, so that's the AAP, right? Carol George wrote the adult attachment interview. It was her doctoral dissertation. The AAI. The AAI. Not Mary Main. No, not Mary Main. Oh, I thought it was Main and Solomon that did the AAI. No, absolutely not. Main and Solomon did disorganization in infancy. Oh, right, 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 right. Carol George, George Kaplan, Nancy Kaplan, right. and Main okay. right. did, did the, the AAI. A and then Carol George went on to do the AAP as well. Correct. Oh, okay, and okay. Maine and Goldwyn did the AAI discourse analysis. 
The interview is Carol George's work. The original interview. Okay, so I just always... I I really need to say that because the whole world attributes it to Mary Main. Right. And and Carol George created this wonderful interview. It is really true. I've always associated the AI with Main and then the AAP with Carol George. I'm really glad to know that so I can also correct it as I speak of it. You mentioned earlier that you encourage people to use the DMM, but earlier you said to do the AAI with the protocol of the DMM, but the DMM is not a standalone assessment? The DMM is not an assessment. And it uses assessments. It uses uses the strange situation. It uses the AAI. Okay. Could you use it with the AAP? I don't know. The AAI is so wonderfully successful, I have not put out the effort to learn the AAP. Okay, I don't mean to interrupt you, but that was that was actually useful for me. No, Thank you. I, I really want to say the AAI is magnificent, and I don't want to take away from that in any way. Yes, no, no. I changed Carol George's interview a tiny bit. I took away the questions about three wishes for your child in the future so that we could use it with people who didn't have children. And I put in a few questions your first memory, some questions about anger. There are maybe three to four questions that I added, but I changed the discourse analysis quite substantially. I used everything that Maine and Goldwyn had. Their discourse analysis was magnificent in 1985. It was the hottest thing around, and I just couldn't believe how wonderful it was. But when I applied it to an endangered population, it didn't work. It was developed on a super safe population, educated parents in Berkeley that had been geographically and maritally stable over six years. That's an advantaged population. And I applied it in very disadvantaged populations and saw all kinds of discourse that didn't fit. Actually, the truth is, the first place I used it, after being trained by Maine, was with Carlin Lyons Ruth's sample from Boston, which is a very at-risk sample. And I kept finding interviews that didn't fit comfortably into the Maine and Goldwyn system because this endangered sample had more. So that was where I cut my teeth. In my own work, I'm expanding up from infancy and preschool, but as a coder for Carlin, I'm expanding down from the AAI. End of that story, moving to adolescence, the DMM has a new category. We had A3, compulsive caregiving. We had A4, compulsive compliant. Now we get five and six that are parallel to the school age, C5 and 6, A5, A6. A5 is compulsively promiscuous, and A6 is compulsively self-reliant. These are the adolescents for whom no strategy had worked to make things safer at home. The strategies bombed and bombed and bombed, and now as an adolescent, they say, if they're using an A6 strategy, only me. I'll just rely on me. Nobody else is trustworthy. My world will be defined what I can do for myself. 
And in adolescence, you can feed yourself, dress yourself, even get a job. You can be compulsively self-reliant. You don't have to be in an attachment relationship to survive physically. But when you're all alone after puberty, unless you really enjoy masturbating, you've got a problem. Because in order to give expression to your sexuality, you need another person. A5, compulsive promiscuity, is used by some adolescents who find, I think there could be a person for me out there, but it's not anybody I know, it will be a stranger. And they go out and make superficial relationships that they carry to intimacy very quickly And then lo and behold, they find this person doesn't live up to expectation and they're back to self-reliant. And it's an alternation between just me and anybody else. Anybody, is there somebody out there for me? Ah, you failed me. Back to just me. It's a really sad condition. And depression shows up quite frequently among the compulsive A's and especially the A5-6s. And the A5s, compulsively promiscuous, are running the dangers that come from being in a sexually intimate relationship with someone that you do not know. And there are physical dangers and psychological dangers. You now have, on both the A and the C side, denial of information. It's not just that the A's omit their negative affect but they go and they deny it. No, that doesn't hurt. I didn't feel pain. Hmm. No, I'm not frightened. I'm not. They deny the negative affect. And on the true cognition side, they deny true causal statements about what caused what. And here we're getting into a strategy that is coming close to what our president can do and do quite successfully in the news, that has to be denied true cognition. The information is there. Everybody knows it and it's denied. All right, there are your strategies for the assessment I took. The AAI used the same structure but changed the questions to ones that were suitable to adolescents. So I asked about your best friend, I asked about your romantic relationships, not just your mother and your father, but now these new attachment figures that are forming in your life, one that's usually your own gender, your best friend, one that is often a romantic heterosexual, but the question works equally well for all sexual orientations. It isn't stated in gender-specific terms. And instead of asking at the end, how does this affect your parenting? Do you do what your parents did? That sort of thing. We asked, what have you learned about yourself? What would you tell someone who was just beginning to get to know you, and you might want to know them very well, what would you tell them about yourself? So we ask age salient questions about the kinds of things that adolescents spontaneously reflect on. We follow the structure of George's AAI, which is the structure in Bowlby's 
Volume 3, Chapter 4 of Information Processing. She took it straight from Bowlby, and I take it straight from her, but I changed the questions to make them appropriate to adolescents. Nice. And I call it the Transition to Adulthood Attachment Interview. Oh, that's wonderful. AAI. See, now we're just about done. Adulthood ABCD is now in black boxes because the AAI of Maine, George's AAI, Maine, Goldwyn, and now Hesse's system is well validated. It exists. So black boxes, we have an appropriate assessment, tons of data, but we still have four boxes. I have forgotten what the current number is, but I think we're around 7 billion people living, walking on the earth. And if you use this coding method, they are all condensed into four boxes. And almost everybody of clinical interest is in the box called you cannot classify. And cannot classify was introduced by Eric Hesse, 1996. It is a formal category. It does not mean, I don't know what to do with this. It's a category called cannot classify. And it's different than unresolved or disorganized? Disorganized drops out of the model and you cannot classify replaces it. In the coding system, it's unresolved or cannot classify. Okay. And so disorganized no longer exists. That term is not the term that is used for the AAI. Okay. But it's the same box. Right. The terminology has changed. Okay. Over in the DMM... We now, we had the bottom quadrant of our circle open, and now we fill it. On the A side, we get an A7, which is delusional idealization. Most clinicians would be familiar with this. It's the hostage syndrome. It's when you idealize the person who has endangered you that you cannot protect yourself from. And we call it delusional because when we see it, The person responding in the AAI idealizes this person in magnificent terms, and yet this is the person who broke their bones, who held them hostage, who didn't feed them, who was verifiably dangerous. And our speaker denies that information and substitutes false delusional idealization. And when the category is fully present, when the strategy is fully present, the person creates delusional protective events that not only didn't happen, they could not have happened. They are impossible to have happened. And once again, you might want to give thought to presidential characters. And remember, my model allows for an AC. You can sample one side and the other. Yes. Then there is an A8, and it's an externally assembled self. And I use assembled to emphasize that this is not an integrated self. This is a bunch of things put in one pile, and they are done so from an external source. The self is not generating information. This is an iatrogenic pattern. In 100% of the cases where I have seen it, we, the professionals, have created it. We have created it. 
by putting a child in so many different caregivers' homes and so many different therapists, each of whom feeds back through words and behavior information about who the child is, that the child ultimately has no self-generated information and has only externally generated information, much of which is highly inconsistent, but still reported. Dr. So-and-so said this, I remember my foster mother so, she this, and it's told in the voice of a therapist's report, of a professional report. It's told in the third person, it's told with professional jargon, and the individual is cut off from themselves. If you want to create one of these people, you should put a child in foster care, have it not work out, and move him. Have the child get more upset, as he will get, and the foster parents say, we can't handle this upset kid, and move him a few times until somewhere around puberty, early adolescence, you drop him into a group home, all the while giving him as many therapists as possible, as many different people as possible. And you might do a little bit of self-story work. That should really pull this thing together because we, the professionals, think we know the story and we pack our own words into the mouths of people who cannot remember and we think we're being helpful. And we have to defend ourselves, you know what I mean? So then a good foster parent you know, has to construct the story to protect themselves of like, I tried everything and, you know. Nobody is more protective than child protection workers because if they make a mistake, they lose their job. Well, and their sense of themselves. You cannot know the future perfectly. Cannot. I think it's really important to know the strategy that is used by foster parents. When you're doing a case and evaluating the parents and the children are in foster care, always evaluate the foster parents equally. Why? Because they aren't always okay. Let me show you what I mean. And I should tell you, for me, this is really important. I was once a foster parent and what I learned told me about my experience as a foster parent 15 or 20 years before this. So, the doctoral student used AIs to look at the attachment strategies of foster parents. She found that every single one had an unresolved loss of a family member in childhood. Not in adulthood, in childhood. And I went, my God, me too. I was a foster parent, and my sister died when she was 15, and I was 20. And at 25, I became a foster parent, and I had trouble. And I have many explanations for what went wrong, and the services were terrible, and I'll tell you all about it if you want. But no one had asked And I didn't think to tell. And suddenly this research says there was something about me that I brought to our relationship 
without any of us knowing that likely affected that relationship. It affected what I wanted from my foster children. It affected the strategy I used to try to get it. And it probably affected why I felt like a failure when it didn't come the way I wanted it to. It was like a lightning bolt. And then 15 minutes passed and I went, oh my God, again. My husband had lost his brother when he was six, seven years old and his brother was three from a degenerative disease, completely different than the loss of my sister. But here we were, two foster parents, both of us with unresolved childhood losses. Mine was all over my mind. It was so awful and so recent. To see anything, I had to look through it. His was so far away and so unmentioned that I didn't even find out about it until we'd been married quite a few years. And I didn't immediately think of it when I had this finding. Well, I now have not only the AAIs from this study, but another 20, 30, 40 AAIs, most of them coming out of court proceedings, because I do a lot of attachment reports for courts, and I require, if the child is in a foster placement, that we do the same thing with the foster parents that we do with the biological parents, unresolved loss after unresolved loss after unresolved loss, and often in many different ways. Sometimes the foster parent is depressed about it. Sometimes they almost deny it. Sometimes they dismiss it. Sometimes they say, it was really a problem for my mother, but not for me. So they displace it. We need to know, what are you doing with that loss? And how does it affect the fact that you have chosen to bring into your home children who are going to leave your home? You're going to lose these kids. And these kids have already lost their parents. And you've lost somebody. What's the interaction amongst all these losses, past, current, and expected? So what I've shown now on the slide, and your listeners will get to see when they look at the slides, is the adult model enlarged. And it has those strategies we've been talking about from B3 down the A side, down the C side, to psychopathy AC. There are non-psychopathic ACs, A12s, C12s, A34s, C34s. But when you get to A78, C78, you're in deep water. And I will tell you that is among the disorders that we don't know how to fix. So we can't differentiate it can't be fixed from we don't know how to fix it. But I'm quite convinced we don't know how to fix it now. What's interesting about this slide is to look outside of it and see the information processing from true affect and cognition to distorted and omitted and falsified and denied and delusional with integrated true information at the top and integrated transformed information at the bottom. 
Because if you're going to work with these people, any of them, you don't want to just change behavior. You need to change their mind so that they manage information differently or they won't behave differently in the future. They'll go back to what was familiar. So which strategy in this model is best? Every behavioral strategy is the right strategy for some problem, but no strategy is the best strategy for every problem. We need them all. So to be prepared for new problems, you need the B information processing strategy, where you recognize and can use all the transformations of information without getting stuck. Look, I deceive occasionally. Sometimes I feel I'm in a dangerous corner and the only way out is deception. And I can use a false smile and I can mislead you with what I'm going to do and I can deceive and I know it and I'm conscious and I know why. And when I'm finished and I feel safe, I don't do that anymore. I go back to more normative behavior. So you need to recognize all the transformations. You need to be able to use all the strategies. You need to be able to get out of all the strategies. And if you were lucky and you grew up relatively safe, you need to learn to cope with danger. That would give you a mature B, or in Mary Main's terms, an earned B, where B is for best but it's the best information processing. A mature bee, unlike an infant bee, does not require safety. They require a clear mind. So Nelson Mandela can grow up in danger and spend much of his adulthood in prison. Nothing in that should yield security and come out balanced and mature as a bee because his mind is freed from his developmental past. I want a bee that doesn't require external safety, or we have condemned most of the world to not being balanced and psychologically secure. And you can't do it before adulthood. I'll throw in my little factoid. The brain continues to mature until about 35. And your 35th birthday is your altogether best day. And then it begins to deteriorate. <laughs> but you can't be a mature bee at 16 or 19, maybe not even at 25. All right. So I'm putting up my circle again. And now I've drawn a gray line right horizontally through the middle. It's cutting A34 and C34 and now you have an upper half to the circle and a lower half to the circle. The upper half is very unlikely to have psychological disorders. It's a very safe background. Above that halfway point, the probability of psychological disorder is quite low. Below it, it increases as you drop down. And now I'm putting a black line up where you can see it. And that just cuts off the very bottom of the circle. Between the gray line and the black line are the people who come to the various services. 
be it child protection or mental health treatment, this is where most of your patients are. I hesitated. I know the word client. Client to me means that you're prepared to negotiate the services you get. The people who need these services don't know what services they need. They're not prepared to negotiate. Patient comes from the word to suffer, and that's what they are doing. They are suffering. So I take the medical term patient. I don't think we have an equal negotiator here. But between these two lines are the people you ordinarily see. Below the black line, the very bottom of the circle, are the people who are a danger to themselves or to others. And for the most part, they're really not safe out in the public. They need a protected environment. That can be prison. That can be a mental hospital. But they need protection either from themselves or others need to be protected from them. Certainly for some of them, they feel better when they are in an asylum, and I'm choosing that word, because our old asylums gave you asylum from some danger. We never said what it was, but the homes they come from. So now you asked, are there dimensions? And I would say, yes, in my model, next slide, there are two dimensions. Horizontally, there's the source of your information. Do you believe mostly in temporal consequences? Do this and that will happen? Or do you believe mostly in your feelings, particularly your negative feelings? Or are you right in the middle where you're balanced and you trust both sources of information? The further you go out on the DMM circular model toward the edges the more your strategy is distorted with transformed information and you're reliant on only one kind of information because you are increasingly excluding the other information from your thinking. So the extreme A's exclude negative affect. The extreme C's exclude temporal contingencies. They don't believe what causes what? Again, our favorite unnamed example. Vertically, we have another dimension, which is the transformations. From true untransformed information, what I see now predicts accurately what is likely to happen in the future to increasingly transformed information, where you increasingly generalize the information, you falsify the information, you deny some information, you create delusional information. And as you move down in this series of increasingly distorted transformations, the individual has learned that the transformed information predicts danger better than the untransformed information. So I use a common example. We all know people, we don't like them, who have tight little smiles, and you ask them how they are today, and, and you know when you see that tight smile that there is going to be hell to pay, that this person smiling is very angry, 
And you had better predict the opposite of what you see if you want to predict the future. That's the whole notion behind the transformations. You're using information to predict the future and you transform it to get a better prediction. So here are my two dimensions. What source of information do you rely on most or both? And how much do you transform the information before you can believe it? Two very simple dimensions, but it's not quite the same as saying this strategy is worse than that strategy. Each strategy fits some context. Wow. That's kind of what I have to say. Let me try two summations for people who work with other people, whether they're social workers or psychiatric nurses or psychiatrists or your typical psychotherapist. The first would be know yourself. You are the tool. You don't have anything else. When you're in front of someone, the manual won't rescue you. You are the tool. Know that tool. Understand yourself. And I've given you the data on the Brits, and I'm telling you that most of us in the mental health professions are not balanced earned bees. Know yourself. The second point would be worry less about changing behavior and more about changing the way the patient's mind understands information. That brain is going to organize their behavior now and in the future. If you don't change what's happening in the brain, you haven't done the job yet. I'm stunned. (laughs) (laughs) That is so incredible. I feel like I have learned so much. Can you say if listeners would like to reach you where they might can find you? Google Pat Crittenden. You'll get a website. On the website, you will find my email. If my phone number is still there, don't use it. I'm never in the country. I do not answer the phone. Use the email. Okay, great. I try to answer everything. Every December, I do attachment and psychopathology at the Tavistock Center in London. Probably two decades of doing that. So they can go to London. Books. Raising Parents. It's available on Amazon. It's easy to get. And then there's Attachment and Family Therapy. Perfect. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Before you leave, this is super important. In order for us to keep bringing you this kind of cutting-edge material, we really need your help, particularly if you are a professional or use it for clients or your own professional development, or if you're an interested individual that are using it as part of your own therapy and you really feel like it makes a difference to you or any of your family members. We ask that if you can, that you give to help make this podcast accessible to people all over the world. So believe it or not, as generous as our patrons have been so far, we haven't quite yet covered our cost for production. So any help is so greatly appreciated. Of course, only if you can afford it. But we have an ambitious goal and we are trying to hit 100 Patreons prior to our 100th episode, which is coming up super quick. So see if you can help us do that. To do that, join patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. And with that, we really want to thank our newest, newest members. Our platinum member we mentioned at the beginning is Open City Psychotherapy and you will see there up on the website, the Gold Neuro Nerds. We have R.S., Lila Braden, 
Kate Hollingsworth and Penelope. And then for our Nuruners, we so appreciate you too. Lisa Simpson, Juliana Stevens, Terry Coschetti, Celia, Rebecca Weiss, Patricia Ona, Janie Martis, Nicole Sonnenberg, Lucinda Vett, and Anna Caputo. Thank you very much for your generosity and your support. And we hope to be able to connect with you through the Patreon site. All right. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you around the bin. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 